This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you tell us who you are, what you do, and what you're currently working on? My name is Dean Harriet Harris. I'm at the Pratt Institute School of Architecture, and we're working on several things, I think, but principally, if I could suggest a consolidatory term, that we are trying very hard to expand the boundaries of what architectural education is, not just spatial, beyond the institution and the campus, but also in terms of its impact on society. So working externally with um, civic partners, everything from the mayor's office to cultural institutions, to parks and wildlife assets, and really engaging in using New York City as a, as a kind of expanded campus for architectural activism as an education project. You've described yourself in the past as working somewhere between a scholar, a manager, and a practitioner, which is which is a kind of a really fascinating mix of different roles. But can you talk a little bit about your your journey to your current position, how you got into architecture, where you've worked, what you've done? I think I started out believing that what I wanted to do was help people. There was always that. And possibly because, you know, I came from a background where there were certain challenges that made me think that the civic project that is architecture had had some opportunity, often opportunity to make a difference, to create some kind of, well, a stronger sense of social equity within the UK, which is where obviously where I grew up. Um, at first, I thought I'd become a medic because I believed actually medicine is a really great way to help people. And that was what I wanted to do at the beginning. But then after working in South Africa for a while, realized that a medic treats the symptoms. It doesn't have any influence over the cause. Not really. That's what medics do. Um, and actually, there's far more agency in being an architect if what you want to do is impact on um, people's well-being, because the design of buildings, the design of better homes, to my case, was the the kind of provocation working in Soweto, seeing all these people living in sheds and shacks with not no no heating, no lighting other than paraffin lamps and so on, paraffin heaters, and the obvious risks to small children of fire and the pollution implications of all of that. Realizing that in that context, architecture could do so much more than medicine could because all medicine could do was treat bronchitis or burns. Um, whereas architecture could provide homes that would prevent those injuries to begin with. So it felt to me that architecture offered, if one was committed to leading a life and having a career that focused principally on civic change, social justice, and also environmental equity too, that architecture was the, the main and the most powerful of all professional pathways. And that has fed into your vision for what you're doing at the Pratt. And you've been in post, I think, now for 18 months. Yeah, um, that's could right. you talk a little bit more about that vision and, and also how you have rolled it out because obviously this has been a, a rather unusual period most for most of that that 18 months for everyone and obviously in particular for university education. When I applied for the job I made it clear what I'm about and there's a couple of really important things to say about that. Firstly that I would do what I described in my first answer to start looking at activating 
relationships across the city to distribute the campus and the classroom, if you like. The second was to think about international partnerships, which we've been building out. And also to recognise that one of the reasons that so few women apply for dean jobs is because being a dean is actually really difficult to do, period. But it's especially difficult if you're coming from the margins and you don't exactly have a sector or a discipline that's, I would say, championed women or even been able to create a 50-50 gender working environment or professional profile. And that's been and it is continues to be a, a huge issue in architecture, I think. So for me, it was about sort of looking differently at leadership. I'd, un- I'd understood from my own experience that a lot of deans, you know, come in and tend to use it as a project for self-promotion. They lead in a very hierarchical way. I've seen really decent educators go to the dark side of management and become kind of insufferable. So what I wanted to do, and what I hope I've done, is to really look at democratising school structure. So we've got committees. We have our own diversity, equity, inclusion group. We have a school council which is drawn from representatives, not just from the full-time and tenured, but all the way down to the precarious workers who are just visiting adjuncts and things like that, and across all departments and diverse in terms of their identity. And they are advisors both to me and to the faculty. We have a student council, as I mentioned, and a student dean now, a role I created within the school um, that's also being rolled out in other schools at Pratt, and not to mention a ton of other committees and um, groups just convened around different agendas that all broadly situated under a social justice and climate crisis curriculum uh, which is what we've prescribed for the school for the next five years of our development. I think that one of the there was once a famous quote by somebody and I don't know who to attribute it to and I'm sure they'll forgive me eventually but it was the principal responsibility of a leader is to make more leaders and I took that quite seriously and I like to think that I've done that as best I can. What I would say though coming back to one element of your question is that doing this is really really challenging for several reasons this job has been challenging one I didn't get a year run at this before pandemic hit so it's one thing to be in the room with people having participatory workshops on what we want to do next or whatever it's another trying to build a community or even sustain a community on zoom it's not been easy I don't think I actually have been that successful in truth um, I think that I've you know people are tired that they're upset for all kinds of practical reasons that have nothing to do with me but it, you know if you're in a position where you're, you are the kind of buck stops here character. So needless to say, things can be difficult at the same time. It's very hard to reach out and be of any offer practical support to faculty and students who are feeling challenged. And that's been an enormous preoccupation. Is everybody well? Are they okay? You know, can I help? And that's been very hard to do. I think that coming through this, whatever happens next, not just in Pratt, but at any institution, it's a real opportunity, I think, to just look at this period that we've lived through and try to think about what, where our priorities are situated relevant to the construction of a community. I think that I had that project, the democratic project, horribly disruptive and compromised and diluted. And I don't know what will be there at the other end in a way. It may not have necessarily succeeded, but I didn't come in with the kind of the blue dean book, if you like, and just work from the prescription of asserting hierarchy and and control over everybody which is the the playbook with which I'm familiar I really wanted to try and do something different and doing that is risky and one thing I have learned in 18 months is creating democratic structures and giving people democracy does not make them democratic so it's one thing to offer that agency to colleagues it's another as to how they use it 
one of the things that is central to, to what you've been doing is decolonization, decolonizing and diversifying the curriculum. And, you know, architectural culture is obviously, in some ways, a heavily colonized one, dominated by great works, great masters. We're still talking about Le Corbusier and Mies, despite modernism being 100 years old now. Could you talk a little bit about decolonization? How do you go about decolonizing an architecture school? What does it mean to decolonize the curriculum? I think that's a great question. I mean, I could start by telling you what it isn't. And it's illustrated through a conversation I had with one of my faculty members who came into the office, luckily back in the day when that was a viable thing to do. <laughs> so right at the very beginning and said, you know, and he's an older white male and said, I think you're great what you're trying to do. And I just want to say, you know, I know I want to be supportive, but I imagine, you know, I'm not relevant to your cause. And I thought that was one of the most charming things I'd ever heard. And I said, you have no idea how much agency you have and how much more power you have than me in this situation. If we are, if you're, if you're seriously supportive of the idea of decolonizing the school and committed to that agenda, then you as an older white man in a community of older white men at the school can be the ally and the advocate and they will take you more seriously because you are the image of them. Then they'll take some British woman who's rolled up and started bossing everybody about, you know, it's just goes without saying. So one of the other things that needs to, the other thing that decolonization is not, is to sweep away everything that existed and replace it completely with something else. That's not the proposition here. And that's often how, frankly, a lot of right-leaning commentators like to disrupt and, and basically devalue the process. This is very much more about understanding that the how things are configured, what constitutes a canon, what constitutes a discipline, what even constitutes a school, are imperialist constructs that are intended to perpetuate, but also serve, continue to serve the agendas and the desires of a very small community within the planet of, and largely, as we know, white Western, although I use that term with caution, guys. And of course that made, that was effective under colonialism, but the, one of the other misapprehensions is that colonialism is over because it isn't. So for example, colonialism is not over if, you live in a country with where it's illegal to be gay because the reason that law exists in the first place is because probably because the British brought it along with, as part of their colonial restrictions and, and, and as part of their, their laws that transposed into these regions at the time. So colonization is an ongoing project. One could argue that, uh, you know, the continuing economic segregation of, of uh, people of color in this country is, is a legacy of colonialism. The ongoing disenfranchisement of first people's lands in order to drill for oil in this country continues to be a colonization project. In fact, just putting our trash on a boat and sending it to China is a colonization project. It's the same problem. This isn't going to go away. So that's one thing. Decolonization is think, something we're moving towards. It's, we're not even over colonization yet, So, but we are. That's all the project. So secondly, within a school, of like such as mine, where we are really quite a Caucasian, Western, privileged group of people, including myself, and we're situated in a community that's far more diverse than that. One of the questions we have is, of course, how does this school become more porous? How do, how do we offer opportunities for people to become more engaged in what we're offering? And as a view to expanding, really, the inclusivity that we profess to be committed to. So that's another thing. I think a third is this deconstruction of the canon and reconfiguration of the canon, and in many cases of restoration and reinsertion of key figures, is a project that 
needs to sort of look at architectural production and outcomes in a very expanded way. So as an illustration of this, one of the arguments always leveled against women architects as to their absence in the canon is, well, they don't have major buildings and not, there's not many monographs about them. So therefore they can't be significant. I mean, there are hundreds of books on Corbusier. This is fetishization. It's, it's kind of sort of like, in a way, sort of spatial kind of entry level homoerotic porn in a way, because it's just like this relentless over attachment to a couple of key figures it goes into whole other territories of, of desire and fantasy that, you know, frankly, not suitable pre-watershed. But I think what's interesting is, is that, you know, invariably there are women attached to these characters, you know, Aileen Gray in the face, in the, you know, you can riff off of Cabuzier and get to Aileen Gray in terms of what he did to her work, painting his obscene murals all over her design work as a, as a way of just basically reacting very aggressively to what her talent, you know, de- painting them while, while naked, wasn't he as well? Yeah. Which, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, that's the kind of, yeah. And, you know, I mean, we talk about aggressive takedowns, right? We've seen what's happened to people like Ava I, Franchagioet at the AA and also Leslie Loco, how people, significant women can be kind of just, you know, structurally assaulted pretty much and moved out of an institution. And, you know, how that's, and Aileen's experience of Cavizier's defacement is a similar a similar model and there's not too much that distinguishes them really and it, so it continues but I think if we start to look at an expanded definition of what constitutes a canon what constitutes an archive what constitutes a practice what constitutes an architect and also you know moving beyond those parameters that's where we start to it's not as hard as it looks to realize that there's a ton of material out there that can enhance the canon it can, can fill in gaps in the canon and also because why do it? Let's see. I mean, one, it's about what's true and fair. It's about justice, about accuracy, but it's also about what the discipline, who the discipline speaks to. If it's a mirror image of a bunch of dudes, uh, then it is little wonder that we still can't shift the needle on the fact that in both in the US and the UK, you know, you're looking at 20% of architects being women. And there's practically, I think it's 0.2% of architects in the US are African-American women. So there is a massive issue regarding diversity of representation in the profession and by implication, their impact, their ability to impact effectively on society. And those are the, that's the cause. These are the reasons why we have to do this work. So how does education reshape the profession? Because, you know, take, taking some representation of women, for example, I think it's, it's nearly a 50-50 split entering architecture school in the UK, I think it's possibly similar in the US. But of course, the stat you just mentioned, 20% of architects are women. Something's happening <laughs> there. How, yeah. how does all the, all the work that you're doing in education then move into reshaping the profession and making it more representative, more diverse, and actually reflecting the people that the profession claims to be serving? I think what the... The ongoing issue between 50-50 students being female and then 20-80 architects being female indicates one critical thing, that pedagogy is implicated. So this is really a question about what schools are doing to maintain discrimination. And I think it comes down to curriculum pedagogy. It comes down to the lack of diversity of educators, deans, professors, coordinators, chairs, whatever. But it's curricular too, you know, it's the content, as we talked about the canon. Um, but that's the problem, right? So pedagogies, along with every other thing, needs to be decolonized. We need to look to see whether, uh, you know, a design studio system 
predicated on you know an inequality um, of if you like um, authority regarding subject matter and also depending on if you have a gender bias which we obviously do and certainly a, a race bias within architectural education then only a certain kind of story gets told only a certain set of processes curriculum and outcomes are prescribed and determined so that really does send like not even unconscious messages to students who feel marginal to that mainstream and so we as a an entire discipline or field whatever you want to call it and with Jane Rendell on the whole kind of we're not really a disciplinary practice because we're just too much of a, an amalgamation of far too many disciplines which is what makes us great but it also makes us problematic but until that's really re resolved I don't think you know we until we resolve our pedagogic problems if you like and see pedagogy as being something not just the profile of faculty members or whatever but the pedagogies we're using to teach architecture needing a rethink then we're going to always struggle to maintain um, what starts out as being a very healthy gender balance when students enroll in schools of architecture. Your editor of a recent book Architects After Architecture with uh, Rory Hyde and Roberta Marcaccio which is a really fascinating snapshot of a profession but also the kind of the edges of it. I think there's kind of great potential in using that to kind of think about how we use architectural tools or architectural techniques or ways of thinking to address some of the fundamental questions in society, the structure of society itself, politics, democracy, these things that can be reconceived as design problems. And I'm kind of interested in what kind of then, if we're tackling these things kind of outside of the, the traditional bounds of the discipline, what kind of makes it's still architectural. What is the unique thing that architects or people who have a training in architecture can bring to these questions? Architecture is interesting because I think my point earlier was this notion of we are not really a discipline. We are an amalgamation of many disciplines. And if you think about it, obviously what the, the kind of, if you like, if a discipline's a parent, almost subdisciplines being the offspring, or even kind of trans disciplines perhaps being the offspring, then you're looking at um, the kind of grandparents and ancestors being epistemologies and knowledge frameworks. And what's interesting to me is that architecture is very much the, the kind of love child of multiple epistemologies and multiple disciplines. And I think that that gives us an advantage because on the one hand, we have a curriculum that many would argue is overburdened and hence the various concerns about students working too hard, et cetera. And that's, you know, a different kind of question, I think, because I think there's ways to remedy that while you still keep the disciplinary richness. But the other though, is that we have an advantage insofar as having had that kind of smorgasbord of, of disciplinary experiences can work in a very agile way across a lot of methods, processes, tools, as you describe them and contexts. And I certainly think that's an exceptional skill set, whereas every other discipline is taught things on a very discipline specific basis. And um, we don't have that sense of confinement. I think that may be why we're a bit arrogant, <laughs> or one of the reasons. Um, but I also think it means that the other, that we have an ability to toggle in very easily to different contexts, different sectors, and different challenges. And the other thing, of course, is that and we know this to be true, the, the, the principal emphasis within architectural education is on the design studio environment. And there's been people who've written about this, Donald Shun, for example, but you know, he's not even an architect, he's a managing consultant, but he, he realized that design studio is amazing. So he wrote a great book about it. You know, it's this understanding that the studio culture um, where, you know, there's that kind of like 
contestation of ideas, people looking over each other's shoulders, engaging in this kind of discourse and debate, but also, and really critically, creating an environment in which kinesthetic learning, in other words, kind of making through doing, physically doing, not just using eyes and intellect all the time, and using that maker process as a, as a, as a means of inquiry, testing, prototyping, and thinking through concepts and their practical application is really exceptional. And I think that what architects can then do, of course, is go out into any sector and apply three-dimensional problem solving to whatever the challenge is. And that's where, coming back to your point about the needs of society, I think architects can work between these two very exceptional skill sets of multi-hybrid disciplinarity and then this ability to kind of use three-dimensional thinking in to adjust anything. So in my view, like when we talk about architecture as being just about buildings, well, there's a few reasons why that's problematic. It's not that buildings aren't, of course, important, but we need to understand that already we are moving towards a period in our history or the planet's history where mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction could well be imminent because of the destructions human, the destruction humans are wreaking on the planet. So um, we have to start being far more considered about materials. We have to be far, far more thoughtful about repurposing what we have at the moment rather than constantly doing new build work. So it's great to have students create fantasy models for a, you know, a, a, a kind of neo-Mars existence. And that's fabulous. Of course, we want play and we want experimentation. That's a, you know, a way to, for people to really test and develop their ideas and, and, their, and their own creativity. And that's what schools, of course, should do. It's that space in which to explore and advance. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that we, are, we continue to overemphasize the idea of producing buildings onto blank canvases of you know, brownfield and not really thinking how do we place far greater emphasis on actions that are about utilizing what there is and moving beyond the paradigm of architecture is a built you know a building's producer and moving into something that's much more around how do you take architectural skills to solve complex problems it's the same methodologies and it's interesting because running a school is a design project it's intersecting parts it's complex structures it's leaky basements you know it's everything and it's it's all of that it's that ability to kind of take a, the project of defining what a school's agenda should be how it should be restructured how it can be developed in advance that's like a you know, that's a, a refurb project. <laughs> so, you know, I think that it does work. And I think that we don't do enough to op- offer our students the possibility while they're in school and encourage them to connect to the possibilities of architecture after architect. Harriet Harris, thank you very much. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating, and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.